Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Who are we? How do we see and experience the world? What are the hidden forces that drive us? Why do we act, think, and feel the way we do? And how can we become our best, most authentic selves? Welcome to Typology, a series of freewheeling conversations in which we use the Enneagram typing system to explore the mystery of the human personality. I'm Ian Cron. Well, welcome to Typology, everybody. I'm delighted that you're here. And here in the booth at Weld, the community workspace in Nashville, Tennessee, is my good friend and producer, Chad Michael Snavely. Chad, how are you? I'm great. How are you, Ian? Man, I'm good. This past week, I had this kind of remarkable experience, right? Is, uh, is that why you're holding a guitar right now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Okay, so let me just... Help you understand why. Please do. Okay, so I was up in the attic cleaning okay. out some stuff, and I came across an old journal in which I found the lyrics to a song I wrote, like, this is true, uh-huh. literally 30 years ago. When I was six years old. Yeah, pretty okay. much. Yeah, 30 years ago. <laughs> Loser. I was not. I was Actually, I was, but I was an extremely we'll talented six-year-old. A very talented right. six-year-old, okay? Right. So after reading these lyrics, I thought to myself, wow, like these words are so angst-filled and kind of, I don't know, dark, Mm -hmm. right? And they reflect the interior landscape of a four. Like I'm a four on the Enneagram. And then I thought to myself, I've got to share these lyrics with people on on typology (laughs) because – we're doing a show on forest today, yes. and I'm like, okay, this is a this is a setup. But then I thought to myself, well, why read them? Oh no, I want to hear this song. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th- I thought, well, why not? <laughs> to your point, Please. sing a verse and a chorus of this song to give people, like maybe who are on the fence about whether or not they like the show, a, re- sure. a reason to unsubscribe. <laughs> Start now, just right now. Here you go. I'm gonna winnow. I'm gonna right now. I'm culling the herd. Right now, I'm culling the herd. Now, listen to me. You're sitting across from uh-huh. me. You are not allowed to laugh. I will turn. I my wrote mic this off. song 30 years ago. I have written better songs <laughs> since then. I know that to be true. Okay. Yep. And um, but man, this kind of captures okay. what a four is like. And remember, I was you know in my early twenties. I was like twenty. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this is kind of a great example um, of what a not very self aware four is like. Okay. Okay. I can't wait. For All right. This. this is from a song aptly titled yes. for a four: "Stranger in the Promised Land." Take it away. Ah, uh, here we go. Well, I've got this hole inside my heart And it's caused me years of pain 
Someone told me once you could fill it up But it comes back time and again So where's the stream that runs through the desert? Where's the rose that grows in the sand? Oh, I called your name but only silence came Oh, and I'm angry cause I still don't understand Tell me why, oh why Do I feel like you're a million miles away Am I just a child in your cradle Am I just an orphan in your hand Or am I just a stranger in the promised land My hope is that we're the first podcast to win a Dove Award. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) me too. (laughs) Now, listen, listen to me. I mean, that that really, that that, that kind of sums up. Sums up up a four. Yeah, I mean, the interior landscape. I mean, you know, stranger in the promised land, feeling abandoned, you know, um, feeling this kind of melancholy, uh, you know, living in this really melancholy space. Mm. Um, fours, like they are very creative. They're temperamental. They feel a need. This is their underlying motivation. They feel a need to be special and unique mm. to overcome and compensate for what they feel they lack inside, right? They have this feeling that something's missing in me and other people are complete, but I'm not. And therefore, I kind of envy other people because yeah. they're happy. And I feel like I'm disqualified hmm. from feeling uh, the same sense of ease of you know being in the world and belonging. So on today's episode of Typology, I'm going to talk with popular blogger and podcaster, author, and Fellow Enneagram for my friend Tish Oxenrider. And the good news is, Chad, is our conversation isn't nearly as dark or depressing as my youthful <laughs> lyrics. Okay, like, you know, we've kind of we've, I've made some we've advances. Gone there. Yep, yep. Okay. In fact, my conversation with Tish today is kind of a blast. Yeah. So enough talk about me. Let's talk more about me (laughs) (laughs) and, more importantly, about Tish Oxenreiter on this week's episode of Typology. Let's get to it. Hey, Tish, welcome to Typology. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, we are so excited that you uh, agreed to come on and and, uh, spend a little bit of time with us. Now, you are an Enneagram 4. I am, which is still strange for me to admit because I've only known this about myself for a few months, Ooh. having thought I was other numbers for quite a while. So, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll circle around to that. But let me, let, let's start the way that I do with, with other folks, which is maybe just to run you through a few questions. You know, we'll call it the sort of the confirmation. Uh, this is confirmation class. I was raised a Roman Catholic, so that makes sense. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, I'll ask you a bunch of questions. These are sort of, uh, you know, characteristic of fours, and you just answer yes or no. How's that? Sounds good. Here we go. I like things that are unconventional, dramatic, and refined. Yes. Okay. 
I never really felt like I quite belonged or fit in. 100%, yes. <laughs> Should we just finish right there? Should we just finish it right up? Okay, right. here we go. M- melancholy is comfortable for me, so it's annoying when people try to cheer me up. Uh, yes, I- yes, more or less. Okay, more or less on that one. Okay. I spend a lot of time trying to explain myself. Yes. Okay. I feel there's something essential missing inside me. Yes. Okay. I worry a lot about abandonment. Hmm. Yeah, in a way. Okay. I mean, maybe not in a traditional way, so yeah. Oh, not well, that would be very foolish that if it wasn't in a traditional way. I think I, there <laughs> right. you go. It has to be different. Right. Uh, <laughs> I'm, right. I, I'm, uh, try this one on. I'm either an artist or highly creative. I come up with one amazing creative idea after another. It's executing them that's hard sometimes. Yes. Okay. For sure. Yep. And then, let me see, one last one would be, I have so many feelings in a day, it's hard to know which ones to pay attention to first. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. I, and that's probably the thing that held me back from calling myself a four the most, because I don't think of myself as emotional, but like in a classic sense, but yes, I, I think I'm coming to terms with the fact that that's true about me now. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of coming to terms around the Enneagram, isn't there? Apparent. I know, I know. So much coming to terms. Okay, so um, fours are called the individualists. Sometimes we're called the romantics. Um, I'm a four, so this could be a very long podcast. Uh, <laughs> the need or the underlying motivation for fours is this this drive to be special or unique, right? There's this belief that there's something missing in our core makeup that kind of haunts us. And so, you know, envy is like the wallpaper on the inside or in the interior of a four's life. Because we we look at other people and think, gosh, I, I wish I had that missing piece that you seem to have, you know. Is that your experience of life? Not only is that my experience, but this is what confirmed to me I'm a four because I was not aware that not everybody feels that way. Like, mm. to me, that was such a given that that's sort of the MO of how how one lives life that whenever I finally talked with someone about this, I didn't realize that this wasn't just common to humans, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's one of the gifts of the Enneagram, isn't it? That you you not only begin to see the world through other people's eyes, other types, but you begin to realize, gosh, we are incredibly different. Yeah, you know, um, especially in this modern social media heavy world we live in, it's so easy to get that FOMO, you know, that fear of missing out kind of feeling Mm -hmm. that I had to put a lot of just practices in my life to protect myself from that. And in talking with some friends about that, I didn't realize that that wasn't a struggle that so many other people deal with on on a regular basis anyway. Mm. Um, and, and to me, that was a key indicator as well. Wow. Okay. So how long have you been around the Enneagram? Um, about five years now, honestly, um, more or less, you know, the first bit I've heard of it, it was a little bit of this like woo woo idea that some people I knew were into, but you know, um, it wasn't long until I really got sucked in. Okay. So I just want you to know, you are the second person in a week to use the term woo woo with me. <laughs> and, and prior, I don't know where I've been living, but, but I had never heard the term woo woo, but, but you know, it's actually a pretty pretty good word, isn't it, for for like the sort of like, oh, I don't know, this kind of strange, you know, odd, outside, weird thing, right? Which I think lots right. of people have the impression they have of 
of the Enneagram when, you know, it's it's anything but, you know? Right. So you have this amazing life. Like I've been, you know, I listen to your podcast. I, you know, I've been kind of a fan from a distance, you know, and you've got this amazing life. The art of simple is your thing. Tell us about the art of simple. Well, you know, when my husband and I moved to Turkey 10 years ago, we started over with life. Like we didn't, um, we only brought a few bags with us. And so it was like hitting the reset button for creating a new daily life. And I had a two-year-old and then soon after I became pregnant with number two. And it felt like I was giving myself permission to, you know, ask, do I want this thing in my home? Do I want this thing in my life on my calendar? And so I, I kind of got this perspective of what it means to sort of recreate life in a relationship-based culture instead of a productivity-based culture, which is the U.S. And it wasn't too long after that, though, that I was um, diagnosed with depression from a therapist. And um, in spending time with him, one of his suggestions was that I find a creative outlet. And, you know, long story short, I started writing as my creative outlet online from Turkey. And it kind of just took off this idea that I never knew resonated so deeply with me. This this concept of living simply. And then, I mean, to bring the whole being a four into this, living unconventionally. Like mm. I really loved this idea of I'm living differently than my mainstream culture, the way I grew up um, because it, it just resonated more with my soul and more deeply as though like this is how we were made to live. And um, so, yeah, 10 years later, I'm, I'm still plugging away. That is amazing. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I actually, the, the, when I was reading your materials, you know, I love helping nice people live simple, unconventional lives. And I just started laughing out loud because I'm thinking <laughs> that is about as far as we're going to get today. You know, living an unconventional life. You, know, you might as well have just said special and unique. I know. I know. My husband even last night was saying he's a nine in like a textbook nine. He was saying, you know, not everybody feels the need to live an unconventional life. <laughs> and, and I was like, really? No, Are you sure? God. Okay. So <laughs> I am married to a nine. Oh, gosh. Okay. okay. This is going to be, we, we're going to have to call, our, uh, you know, call off the rest of the day here because we, <laughs> y, you and I are all in for the rest of the day. So we have to circle oh, back to fun. fours married to nines. Okay. Right. <laughs> That's oh, great. my gosh. So, oh, yes, living the unconventional. My wife sometimes calls me Mr. Gotta Be Different. Right. You know, right. gotta be different, gotta stick out. So I want to circle back. Thank you for, you know, that disclosure about suffering with, with depression or going through a season of it. And needing a creative outlet, what a wise counselor. Because, I mean, without a creative outlet, a four is an interior train wreck. Yeah. I mean, looking back at the wisdom that I didn't know I needed, that creative outlet was my sanity saver. And honestly, it could have been a lifesaver um, looking back mm. because, you know, especially when you live cross-culturally, you suddenly become a toddler when you're an adult, you know, when you don't know the language, when you don't know how to ask for the most basic things and, and just so many cultural faux pas here and there that um, having that creative outlet to give me something that I was even mildly good at, you know, made me feel more like a human being, made me feel a little bit more like myself. And man, it's been a life. I mean, it still is a lifeline. And I live back in the States now, I think. Yeah. You know, I went through a, a season of depression too. And I, I, I can tell you that that is so common among fours. Um, mm -hmm. I really can't tell you how many fours I run into for whom that's their, that's their experience, you know, is they're acquainted uh, with the realm of, of grief, you know, uh, in a way that other people 
art as a tune to. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's hard for me to accept that I think in some ways, because I don't have a lot of classic things to grieve. You know what I mean? I've mm-hmm. lived a pretty good life. My children are all healthy. We have all that we need. And to come to terms with the fact that that is just a part of my um, humanity and, and, you know, just my MO has been healthy and important for me to, mm. to be okay with that because then I kind of can struggle with guilt a little bit, you know, like right. why do I feel so melancholy about things or, or just even, you know, that envy thing where you feel left out, like why am I feeling this way whenever there's people that struggle with so much worse, you know? Mm. Yeah, and what you're talking about there is really shame, you know, which, mm. you know, twos, threes, and fours are part of the shame or feeling triad, right? So, you know, shame kind of plays in the background of a forest life like Muzak. You know what I mean? It's like it's always <laughs> kind of present and it doesn't take much to activate it mm. uh, and make us feel not enough, you know, or less than the people that we're looking at in the world around us. At least that's my experience. Yeah. And, you know, I, I see that too with the up and down, like what you asked earlier and how I feel a little like, oh, I don't know <laughs> about my emotions going up and down. I feel like it is tied a lot into that sort of a shame cycle. Like if if, if I feel like things are good, then I'm in a good mood or, or my mood feels up. And then as soon as I kind of start toying with this idea of feeling, you know, sh- shamed for thinking a particular something. My mood can just crash. And <laughs> oh man, yeah, right. I, I I must be a picnic to live with, you know? Well, my wife, you know, <laughs> so we're we're married to nines. Nines, you know, their emotional landscape is a lot more stable than ours. They are just they got that inner hakuna matata, you know, it's like everything is just even keeled and you know, moving along at just, you know, at the right pace. They're just, everything's copacetic. And, you know, we're a little bit more like kites without a string. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like we're just can be untethered emotionally in comparison <laughs> to other people, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, like our experience, we, we've done a lot of travel as a family. Um, not too long ago, we we traveled for a year, the five of us. And my husband, Kyle, was the um, the anchor to my ability to make this trip happen because, man, as soon as things got a little bit off, I mean, even really shallow things like it's too hot or the bus is too crowded and I can feel, it, it's so easy for me to feel like that um, can affect the definition of a good day, you know, like, oh mm-hmm. gosh, now the day's gone. And Kyle is so level-headed that we play each other really well in that way, I think, you know. I help him maybe a little bit more deeply experience things, you know, see and smell and taste things. Um, but he is the one that keeps me from probably jumping off the cliff, yeah. you know. Oh, listen, I, I absolutely know, and my wife knows exactly what you're talking about. I can I can assure mm. you of that. So, <laughs> so here's, I'm going to just dig down a little bit deeper. You said that you went through a season where you weren't sure whether or not you were a four. Like, you know, that it's a recent revelation, last couple of months, but you've known the Enneagram for five years. So tell me about that journey and, and, and like what you once thought you were on the Enneagram. Right. So this seems so strange now, but I used to think I was a three. Mm -hmm. And it's strange to me because I read a three now and I don't see myself at all. But but what it is, is I I do like succeeding. Mm -hmm. I like um, even 
people maybe seeing me as successful. And I read that about three. And so I thought, hmm, that's me. But there were so many other things about threes that just didn't resonate with me when it came to, um, you know, just the work, not not the work ethic, but maybe the motivation for work and mm-hmm. and the being on stage, being a performer, that wasn't me at all. And so I really struggled, but I, I think I assumed that some of my... Um, I don't know if you would call it moodiness or the need to be original was tied to my work as someone who does stuff online, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, because my work is somewhat public as a writer and a podcaster that that meant I was being on stage somehow. And whenever I realized that, no, that's, that's not actually what that means, that things like my podcast are more like a canvas than a stage you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then I realized, okay, I'm not really a three because I'm not motivated by this need to appear successful. Maybe I'm a five because I also really um, have limited energy sometimes, I feel like. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, in fact, I think I heard on your episode on the liturgists where they talked about or you talked about uh, fives having a finite amount of energy. I thought maybe I'm a five because there are points, there are times in the day when I'm just like, I'm done. But when I realized that's also kind of part of my up and down moods, you know? Mm -hmm. um, And having kids. And having kids, there's just life to live, right? I mean, we we all just have a finite amount of time and energy in the day that just makes us, you know, people. Um, That I'm not really a five because of the... um, maybe investigative side. I enjoy research, but only to a point. I need that canvas. I need to write. I, I don't know what I'm thinking until I write. I am hugely motivated by this need to be autonomous, to be original, to be um, different from everyone. And yet for other people to be okay with that, mm-hmm. you know, for people to see that and to be okay with me being original, even if it's it's not on stage, really. I, I, I even struggle sometimes, like one of my soapboxes is um, kind of this weird culture we have of of idolizing people, mm-hmm. I, name dropping, all that kind of stuff that really bothers me mm-hmm. a lot. And so I think I can see now that the four in me, um, maybe that's about not being original or <laughs> or feeling this like being forgotten kind of thing. Mm. So... Um, you know, and then talking with somebody, I realized that there's this thing called a counter type four, mm-hmm. which I know you know much more than I do. And this is what sealed it for me because I had written myself off as not a four because of the the idea of being melodramatic. I'm not super dramatic. Like I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't make a scene really. But what someone told me is that a counter type four takes those up and down emotions and puts them into hard work mm-hmm. and they concentrate on working hard as a way to almost save themselves and to justify who they are and their their existence and I thought oh wow that's me and that's what I thought I was when I was a three the hard work part mm-hmm. okay and so, so yeah this is journey. amazing okay so you you're you're opening a big old box right here so <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, this could really depress some people. There really are 27 types, <laughs> right? <I know. laughs> so there are nine core types, and then there are three subtypes under each of the numbers, right? And they're related to instincts. Okay, so you've got 
uh, we all have an instinct for survival, right? Self-preservation. We have one for, you know, a social instinct, like where are we in the herd? You know, our relationship to the herd. And then we have a third subtype, which is sometimes called the sexual subtype or the one-to-one subtype, which has to do with, you know, our one-on-one relationship with a special partner or other, right? So what you're describing is the self-preservation four, right? Uh, and it right. is the countertype. And it is the very same reason that I struggled forever with figuring out if I I could not decide between a three, a four, and a seven. Uh. Because self-preservation fours often look like threes or sevens. Uh, mm. The thing that would kill me about threes, though, was was the whole thing on authenticity. Yeah. Right? Like, authenticity is a huge value for fours and for threes— not so much, right? Right. Like they're, they're willing to, you know, in when they're in an average to an unhealthy space in their personality, right? They, they can uh, sort of adopt masks and 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 really leverage their ability to, you know, create an image to suit the crowd, uh, yeah. to you know, to their own benefit. You know, fours don't do that. Like, how did you feel when you read Catcher in the Rye? <laughs> do you, do you, do you're laughing. What what was your response to Catcher? Oh, I remember that. I remember reading that my senior year of high school, and I felt I I, I identified so deeply with Holden Caulfield. Yet I was so yeah. annoyed at him <laughs> at the same time. But I knew exactly what he was so angry about. You know, right? Those, I, I I got it. Yeah, those blankety blank phonies. That <laughs> right. He just kept saying it over and over again. Right? Those blankety <laughs> blank phonies. He's like fixated on people who aren't being real. Right? Yeah. And and right. so. That's a real four thing, you know, that, that need for authenticity. So for those of you listening, um, these subtypes are important, but they are particularly important for fours. Like literally when you read the three subtypes of the four, right, uh, the difference between them almost makes it sound like there are three different numbers. Like mm-hmm. it's like crazy different. The self-preservation, the social and the sexual four, they are so different that you almost think, well, why don't we just, you know, say it's like three other numbers? I mean, it's like they're that different. So this is the little nuances. You've now just taken us into the graduate school of the Enneagram. We start talking about subtypes. We'll do a whole show on it one of these days. But, uh, man, I'm glad you raised it. You and I are like mirrors of each other. We're married to nines. We are self-preservation fours. And we went on the same journey of not knowing our number for a long time before we, we finally hit it. Which, you know, since we're fours, our initial response should be, no, we want to be special. There can't be another person like me, but... Okay, so one time, this is a true story. One time, I was doing some uh, counseling with a couple, and uh, we used the Enneagram, and I, she was a drama teacher. Big surprise, right? Drama teacher. And uh, he was a one, and he was perfectly fine with that. And I started to describe fours, and she starts to puddle and get all teary. And I said, oh you know, Ellen, what's what's wrong? And she just burst into tears. She goes, I thought I was different from everybody else. You know, she, you're just drama teacher, right? This is, you, you, you can't script it any better than that, right? So, oh, I love that. Oh, good <laughs> yeah. night. It's difficult. Well, I can't tell you how many fours tell me that when they read Catcher in the Rye, they felt they had found the icon of all fours, Holden Caulfield, right? Just moving through the world 
melancholy and, you know, angry at all the phonies. And to me, what I think of is the internet now. And that, you know, back to what I was saying about like being frustrated at this idea of like how we idolize other people. I think there's part of me that really gets frustrated at a lack of authenticity online and and seeing people elevate other people that like when I'm in, I would say probably when I'm unhealthy or maybe I just need a sandwich or a nap or something. I, I can feel so frustrated by that. And as someone who works online, the thing that I've learned to do is to close the screen and to walk away and to um, think about someone else, you know, or Mm. like to help, you know, I need to focus on my kids or I need to go meet a girlfriend for coffee and just listen to how she's doing. And, and I don't know, tap into something besides just this inwardness of like, why are all these people being so fake or so fill in the blank, you know, whatever it is. That to me is a sign that I need to like just stop and walk away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not only that, but it's an envy production system, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, you go on Facebook, you know, who puts up stuff about, you know, oh, you know, I'm having a miserable day. Here's a picture of it. You know, they're, right. you know, they're all putting up, here I am in New Zealand and I'm running around the mountains, you know, and I'm, or, or here I am doing this and that. And you're like, I look at those pictures, you know, if I'm in a bad space, you know, I look at those pictures and I'm like, Everyone else is living the life I've always wanted. You know, it's so, I mean, you're right. There are a few things as, as painful for, uh, you know, a four not in a good space who's prone to envy than to jump on Facebook or Instagram, you know, and just feel mm-hmm. like, oh, everyone who has it, the missing piece that, you know, my missing piece is having mm-hmm. the time of their lives. And I'm, you know, on the Isle of Misfit Toys here. And for me, that's why I have learned um, as someone who creates largely online that it is essential for me whenever I wake up and I start my work to create before I consume. Mm. Like I need to spend my morning not opening any sort of social media or any, I mean, barely the internet. And I need to write. I need to work on my book. I need to do whatever it is I do. I need to, you know, be that for, I need to, to be creative and not let it I don't know, this this envy infect me negatively. I need to I need to just, I don't know, be healthier by um, being myself, you know? Yep. And then and then later, after I've had that time to create, then i'm I'm finding that I'm in a better space by the afternoon to do that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know, something like my brain just works more logically by then. Mm. I hear you. I struggle with, you know, having to be self-promotional. You know, because that's yes. what, that's what's required as an author, you know, and as a podcaster and a speaker. You know, I just die every time I have to come up <laughs> with some, you know, clever copy to describe my very special world or pick a headshot because I'm like, oh, gosh, you know, I need a three in my life to come along and, and help me do some of that stuff. You know, it's just painful for me. Yeah. Any sort of anything that I have to present to the world, I always struggle with that feeling of like, that doesn't feel like who I really am. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, even in just the most nitpicky of ways, like what I wear in this photo or my hair, this sounds, I mean, I'm saying this out loud and it sounds ridiculous, but I'll tell my husband and he'll just patiently listen and I'll say, you know, I don't know if this is what I want to wear for my author headshot because does this represent the real me? And he's just like, you know, he's just listening and just sympathetic because nines can feel everything, I guess. But um, yeah, I mean, just saying this out loud, I'm realizing, wow, this is such a fourth way to feel about things. Mm. Yeah. So here we are in this, you know, the heart, the feeling or the shame triad, right? So twos, their attention just instinctively migrates toward the feelings of others. 
for threes, they just don't know what to do with feelings. You know, they, they don't recognize them very well. They don't know how to name them that easily. But fours are exquisitely attuned to their own feelings. So they, they, they turn inward versus outward and, you know, uh, become not – they don't just, you know, have feelings. They are their feelings. Right? Mm-hmm. They are, you know, in any given moment, whatever feeling they're having, that formulates or, you know, their identity – as a person, you know, this is what I am, not what I'm feeling, but literally, you know, I'm swept up in this thing. How does that play out for you, particularly as a parent? Like fours as parents are tricky. Right. You know, I, I'm right now, my oldest is 12 and she is in the throes of, you know, preteenhood and got one foot in childhood and one foot you know, moving on out. And so I have her all the way to nine and a half and seven-year-old boys who are pretty classic, just boys right now. And so I find myself um, all over the map in one day, you know, mm-hmm. and and what's funny is I see so much of my daughter in me and it feels like it was just yesterday that I was a 12-year-old girl. Like, I cannot believe I'm on this other side. And I know for parents who have even older kids, they think, you know, we'll just wait. You know? Right. Yep. But really, I can't believe I'm already there. And and so she'll say things and I'll, ident- I'll know exactly how she's feeling about why she's, you know, I don't know, you fill in the blank of whatever that I would say is probably unreasonable because it's not so much based on logic. And I'll know why she feels that way, even though I know, okay, but this is wrong. And I don't, anything I say is not really going to, communicate exactly right what it is that I need her to know. And I find, you know, she and I have have had a good relationship um, and I want to keep having that good relationship. And yet, um, you know, as a four, I also need to be okay with her not always liking everything that I say and not so much in a people pleasing way, but in a, um, in a being understood way. You know, I need mm-hmm. to be okay with her not understanding me. Oh. And um, that's that's an interesting place to be. I almost feel like a child in a way. Like I'm yep. being a child as a parent, you know? Yeah, you know, in fact, Enneagram teacher Tom Condon, who's quite good, likens fours to adolescents, right? They were sort of locked in this adolescent worldview where, oh, no one's ever had the feelings I have. You know, I'm so different from everybody else. Now, a lot of people grow out of it, but we seem to keep one foot in that canoe well, you know, into adulthood, particularly when we're not very self-aware. So when you, I almost laughed when you said, you know, I feel like I was just 12 yesterday. I go, I was 12 yesterday, you know? <laughs> Literally, I was 14 yesterday about six times, you know, where I'm just right. sort of swept up in that adolescent emotional turmoil, you know, of angst, 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 you know? Anguish is a second language is... Uh, something I could I could say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Probably teach fairly well. You have a <laughs> you have a new book out 
I do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been fun to have it out in the world now. It's actually called At Home in the World. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's been really fun to finally get to share it with people. That is the least for title of a book I have ever heard in my life. <laughs> at Home in the World. The last people who feel like they're at home in the world are fours. Who, did you or the publisher come up with that title? You know what? It was me. And the reason is because that turned out to be the entire uh, journey that I took inwardly whenever I was traveling for a year. I did not know that that's what I knew I would write about our trip, but I thought it would be a little more straightforward, like, you know, parenting in different cultures or, you know, some form of travel memoir, but something else. I, it turned out to be a travel book about home. And it's this idea of, um, traveling as an act of um, searching for the ideal, the side of heaven. And that's the same thing as what we do at home whenever we're just constantly wanting our home to be better and and more, you know, fill in the blank. It, it's the search for heaven that's not possible, mm. the side of um, earth or the side of heaven. And, um, you know, I realized that there's this constant tension that feels like a paradox, but it's okay to both love traveling and to love being at home mm -hmm. and and to be at rest with that, that we're never going to cross off everything in our bucket list. Right. And and that as soon as we get home, um, you know, real life happens and, and travel is not the best way to escape that. And just to be okay with that yeah. and to find rest in the tension of nothing ever being perfect. Mm. And, and so that's what the book ended up being about. I mean, it's also about literally our experience traveling around the world, but the theme turned out to be home. And I was, I was probably more surprised than anybody about that. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? That when you're writing memoirish, you know, kinds of materials that the, the thread that holds it all together emerges and reveals itself to you. You don't actually set out with it in mind. It just kind of bubbles up and you go, oh, there it is. That's the, that's the theme that's been running, you know, uh, through the whole of my life or the whole of this work. It's really, it's an amazing experience when, when you yeah. finally see what the work is telling you what it is, you know? So yeah. I just, I want to just jump on something and then I, uh, we can just sort of close up, but you were just at a great line. You said, you know, searching for the ideal, that is such a four thing. Mm -hmm. uh, the ideal soulmate, the ideal home, the, 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 the longing and the pining for the perfect place, whether it's heaven or creating some replicate of it here on earth. That is amazing. And I think also your title of that book, At Home in the World, is like the healing message for fours. Like that's where fours want to get to by the time they exit this planet, which is, I feel at home like I belong in the world. Yeah, you know, it part of of writing the book ended up being the last part of our trip, like my act of writing this book because it was my way of being okay with settling down mm -hmm. and being in a place that wasn't exactly quite right. And even where I didn't quite fit in, you know, I explored this idea that Thomas Merton explores, which is um, this Benedictine vow of stability. Mm -hmm. They're the monks that take this fourth vow um, where they basically say they're going to stay put. Like yep. even when life gets boring or hard or whatever, he basically makes the point, it doesn't really matter where you live so long as you just live fully there. And so to me, that was this lesson I needed to learn that, you know, stop searching for this, whatever's around the corner. Yeah. Just, so just be okay here. I'm going to give you a word. First of all, Thomas Merton's my hero, number one. So now mm. we're really going deep in. Secondly, <laughs> 
there's a word for that. You know, um, there was an old word in the monastic life called gyrovagues. Uh, it's crazy, right? But a gyrovague was somebody who went from monastery to monastery, right, joining orders and then leaving, you know, and then moving on to another one and then moving on to another one, never finding their home, never, you know, belonging, just kind of like flitting from one commitment to another, you know. So the goal or the virtue that fours have to find is equanimity, which isn't a word we hear very often, uh, but mm -hmm. meaning that whatever life throws at us, we can meet it with emotional balance and with a sense of solidity, you know, like we're grounded, it's okay. We can not get swept up in the, in the drama of it. We just have this, this plumb line that's just calm and centered despite, you know, the storms that may be swirling around us, which is not the first thing mm. that fours are like to do. So what a right. rich conversation. Holy smoke. Can you, would you come on again? I would love to. I love talking Enneagram anytime. Oh my gosh. We have a lot more to talk about, Tish. This is, <laughs> I really, I can't thank you enough. And your book is wonderful. I just encourage people to go out and get a copy of At Home in the World. And I'm, you know, going to say a little prayer right now for myself, for you, and for all the other fours that, that I know that all of us would begin to feel at home in the world. Mm, thank you. Thanks for being on. Thanks, Ian. I appreciate it. Thanks for all your work, too. All right. Thanks. See you later. Bye. So most Enneagram teachers I know say that Enneagram 9s are the least complicated of all the numbers on the Enneagram, while 4s are the most complicated number on the Enneagram. So with 4s, what you see is never what you get. There's always layers and layers of stuff going on beneath the surface of their lives. So let's talk about how Enneagram 4s can work on themselves and how folks who love them can help. All right. So first, Enneagram 4s don't have feelings. They are their feelings. When we're not very self-aware, like we tend to organize our identity around our emotions. And, you know, for obvious reasons, that's kind of a problem. Feelings are always shifting and changing. So if you tether your identity to them, you're going to become unstable. You're going to have an unstable sense of self. So to help myself and other fours cultivate a more even-keeled interior, I just said interior, interior landscape, what I tell them is that feelings are like weather patterns. They, they blow in and they blow out. Some days are stormy and others are sunny. So if you're a four, it's really helpful to think of yourself more like the sky, right? Something steady and stable, observing the weather patterns of feelings rather than the other way around. In other words, and I love this quote, it's from Jack Cornfield. He says, no emotion is final. I literally have a post-it note that says, no emotion is final on the screen of my laptop. Also, fours, like we tend to become addicted to suffering and the story uh, of our tragic past. You know, whatever that might be, perceived or real, like we have this tragic story from the past that kind of follows us around like a, you know, a stray cat. So 
Here's a story I want to tell you. A friend of mine was uh, recently at an AA speaker meeting, and the person sharing their life story started off by saying to the group, you know, I've gotten a lot of mileage out of talking about my past. So all I'm going to say about it is this. My childhood was really hard. Now, let's talk about who I am and what I'm grateful for today. Now, I don't know if this person, this speaker, was a four or not, but I can tell you that a four who can frame their life story in a similar way is probably really healthy. Finally, if you're in a relationship with a four, you need to learn how to detach but not withdraw from them. So what I mean by that is don't let yourself get sucked out to sea in the riptide of their emotions. Instead, what you want to do is stay firmly planted on the beach. You want to be present. You want to listen to them without feeling obligated to agree. But if you can, don't leave them. Because if you do, it's only going to confirm their worst fear, which is that they are irredeemably deficient unworthy of relationships, and, you know, probably always going to be abandoned. So in the future, we want to develop shows that explore or teach about Enneagram-related themes and kind of maybe move away from doing interviews every single week into teaching about different topics. So, for example, wings or subtypes or where numbers go and stress and security, relationships with different types— so if you have suggestions for other topics, uh, just hit us up. Go over to Pythology. Py- go over to Pythology and not find me, okay? No. What we want you to do is go to typologypodcast.com and go to the Connect page and fill out the form there. Don't forget, if you're new to the Enneagram and you want to get a quick intro to the system so you can better understand what the heck we're talking about every week, you can download a PDF of a chapter from my book called Finding Your Type on the podcast page at typologypodcast.com. And of course, if you want a more exhaustive uh, primer, you can buy my book, The Road Back to You on amazon.com. And finally, yes, I say this every single week, but it's important. If you like this show, go subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a review. Like, it's a great way to help others find out about this show. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, as I want to say, remember the words of Oscar Wilde, be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. See ya. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.